if you if you look at the the bottom of the page you see on the left hand side it's based on Psalm 24 uh, but this uh, George Wiesel um, lived a long time ago 1642 when he wrote this uh, those were during the wars of religion in Europe where um, people were fighting over the faith and uh, to, to do some of the things that he talks about uh, to have a city that confesses uh, Christ is um, you know the goal of some of the things that were happening and uh, so this is a very current picture uh, for us but also it really captures something of what it was like uh, so many centuries ago to uh, to live for the gospel <clears throat> well we're going to read two passages of scripture while you're still standing I'll try to uh, not hurry through them but not take a lot of time um, it's the very familiar words of Jesus entry into Jerusalem and when he Jesus had said these things he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet he sent two of the disciples saying go into the village in front of you there on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat untied and bring it here if anyone asks you why are you untying it you shall say the Lord has need of it so those who were sent away found it just as they had just as he had told them and as they were untying the colt its owner said said to them why are you untying the colt and they said the Lord has need of it and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt they set Jesus on it as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and peace in heaven and glory in the highest and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples he answered I tell you if these were silent the very stones would cry out and then in the Old Testament our passage will be Psalm 24 Psalm 24 a Psalm of David the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein for he is founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob Selah lift up your heads O gates and be lifted up O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in 
Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. This is God's own word. Please have a seat. I grew up in a small town called Herndon, and every fall we had a big parade. It was called the Homecoming Parade, and uh, we would have bands, and we'd have horses, and we'd have a homecoming king and queen riding in a convertible. Um, and we had fire trucks that were blowing their sirens, uh, and people were marching down the street. And you all, because the town was small, everybody knew somebody that was in the parade. And I loved that parade because it would start way down uh, by Paul Powell's pasture, and it would come all the way up Eldon Street, and then it would go down School Street past my house. So I got to see it, and the parade was wonderful, and it would end, and they'd have a football game and everything. Well, Jesus is going to come back, and it's going to be better than any parade you can imagine. Better than a homecoming parade, better than bands and fire trucks, better than, um, better than horses and people riding on horses, all kinds of things. Uh, and it's a, the time when Jesus comes back. So let's pray that we long for him to come back and us be part of that parade, okay? Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us uh, to long for Jesus' return, to long for his coming, uh, that we might uh, welcome him truly, uh, and that our welcome might be um, glad because he's our king and we want our king to come come back we pray that you'll bless this time help us help us all me included uh, to think about what you say and to love your word because we love what it tells us about Jesus we pray in his name amen, amen. now you may uh, have seen newsreels or pictures of what happened after World War II when the uh, troops returned from uh, Europe, particularly not, uh, I don't know what happened on the West Coast with the Marines, but on the East Coast anyway, when the troops returned, there was a, a big parade down uh, uh, the middle of New York City and streamers and people throwing confetti out of out of the uh, apartments and offices and and uh, people were running up and hugging soldiers and sailors and airmen um, now it's not always been that way uh, if you were a, a veteran of uh, some of the other wars Vietnam or Panama or Grenada or Afghan or Afghanistan or um, Iraq sometimes you came back by yourself <laughs> 
and nobody welcomed you. Um, but the kind of parade that is going to happen when Jesus comes is something of what this psalm talks about. It's a psalm of David, and you might say that this is one of a series of psalms. Uh, there are a lot of psalms that are called enthronement psalms. Enthronement psalms are where the king comes and the king is put in his royal seat and everybody knows it. It's it's done uh, so that it can't be done in secret because nothing that God does is uh, done particularly in secret when he comes to his people. Think about uh, Sinai. Jesus comes or, or God comes to Sinai and what happens? But there are earthquakes, thunder, lightning, the, the clouds come around the mountain. Uh, when God comes to deliver his people at the Red Sea, uh, there's the powerful wind that, that separates the sea. Uh, when God uh, comes uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the angels come through heaven. Uh, they break open heaven, you might say, to sing and praise him. Uh, when the heavens uh, are opened at Jesus' baptism, God speaks as the Holy Spirit comes. So God, God makes himself known when he comes, when he wants to, to make himself known. Now, this is a coming of not the uh, person of God, you might say, but probably the ark of God, which becomes the same kind of thing. Uh, we don't know exactly when uh, David wrote this psalm, uh, there are a couple of ideas about it. In uh, uh, It was uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, the ark is being brought up to Jerusalem. And while it's being brought up, a man named Uzzah touches the ark and Uzzah is killed because the ark is the throne of God. It's the the two cherubim and God is sitting in the, the midst, you might say, of the, the cherubim. So it's the throne of God and, and he's touching the ark of God. He's just a guy. And so uh, Uzzah dies. So it may be that uh, David is thinking about the power that's coming. Uh, it may be that uh, the ark has been brought into Jerusalem and uh, David had erected a tent for it. Uh, and David's thinking back to the day that God brought the ark into Jerusalem, um, that he and the people of God rejoiced as God came in the midst of his people, because that's a key idea here. You want to think about this as God coming to dwell in the midst of his people. This is part of the covenant essence. This is part of what the covenant's all about, is that God comes to dwell in the midst of his people. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I'm going to be with you. He's not going to stay at a distance. God's going to come to be with us because of his covenant promise. And so, um, however it's set up, we don't know the exact setting, but I think it helps if you think about this in terms of a call and response. Now, there are some psalms that are set up like that. Psalm 136 is set up like that, where uh, 
one of the priests or the Levites will have a line and then there's a choir of people who says, his steadfast love endures forever. All those times, his steadfast love endures forever. And so there's this call and response back and forth. And that seems to be sort of the case. And we're going to look at the the psalm broken down in three parts. If you have um, a Bible, it probably shows you something of that breakdown. The first two verses, the first two verses uh, talk about, you might say, the approach, the approach to the city. Uh, And the next verses, three to six, talk about the welcome uh, and the the asking of how is this going to happen? Three to six. And then finally, seven to ten, picture the actual entrance in uh, and the seating, you might say, in glory of God among his people. So we could look at it in different ways, but but there are three divisions. And so we're going to follow those three divisions uh, as we think about this. Look at the first two verses, verses one and two. David is talking about God in a specific way. As we think about God, how do we think about God? Look what this says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers or the waters. So now we're thinking about God in his creative power. God is the creator and he is identified as the covenant God. Look there at verse 1. It says, the earth is Yahweh's. Yahweh is the name for God, the God of the covenant, the one who made the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one who's taken Israel as his own people. And so God is seen here as the creative power. Now, of course, there are lots of Psalms that talk about God in his creative power. Uh, Psalm 8, Psalm 19, uh, Psalm 136, and and many, many others uh, talk about it. But one thing to understand is that God's creative power, according to Romans chapter 1, leaves people without excuse. People don't have any excuse for not acknowledging our God, the living God, the covenant God, Yahweh, as the creator God. They have no excuse because God's works are spread all around them. God owns it all. God, when he comes to the earth, is coming to his own dominion. This is his place. It's not just his covenant people. It's every blade of grass, every grain of sand, uh, every tree that grows, everything is God's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything, it's grandness. Now the world is a huge place. The earth is a magnificent place with oceans and mountains 
uh, mighty rivers and, and all the rest. God has it all. He owns it all. The world and those who dwell therein, every living creature, every single person, whether they acknowledge God or not, they are his and they owe a debt to him. And I've mentioned before that one of the great sins that mankind has committed is ingratitude. From Romans chapter 1, men did not give thanks. And because they did not give thanks, they're under judgment because they don't thank the God who made them, who made their world, uh, that gave them life and everything. Um, He founded it upon the seas. And we can think all the way back to the book of Genesis and how God brings order. Isn't that amazing that God orders all things? Here's, Here's the world without form and void. And God creates a sun. He creates stars. He creates the moon. He sets boundaries for the sea. He says thus far and no further. He has set a shore for the ocean so it will not pass by. And that means that everything in the world is under his power. Now you think about our world. We seem to have chaos in our world sometimes. We have tornadoes. Who would have thought the East Coast would experience so many tornadoes as we've experienced. And yet we do. There are tsunamis, there are earthquakes, all sorts of things. And, and in our individual lives, there seems to be all kinds of upset, all kinds of things happening. The loss of family members, sometimes the loss of a child, loss of a spouse, sometimes the loss of a job. Uh, all kinds of things change in our lives. And yet over it all, David has these words. He has ordered it. He has founded it upon the seas. He has established it upon the rivers. God has brought order to our world. No matter what you think of your life, no matter how you look at it, remember that God has brought order to your world. And God is so great that no temple, no tent, no tabernacle can contain him. David acknowledges it, Solomon acknowledges it, and Paul acknowledges it. God himself, however, made a fitting temple. Now that temple that that Solomon made was a beautiful thing, but it was destroyed. It didn't last, it couldn't last. And every day priests went in who had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they themselves sinned. So you had sinful people coming into the holy place and only once a year do you have a high priest going into the holy of holies to offer an atoning sacrifice because he had to pay uh, sacrifices for himself and all the people. So no temple was completely And we're going to see that in just a minute. But God did something remarkable because God built a temple for himself, a mercy seat in the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come. He is the one who creates all things. All things consist and hold together by him. And he has all authority. 
That's what he promises his church when he leaves. He says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus has all authority. He has authority to stop storms, to give sight to the blind, to help the lame walk, and to raise the dead. So Jesus gives us life because he's got that right to give life to his people. So he's the mighty Lord of creation and he will return. So the first two verses picture that coming up toward the place where God's seat is going to be put uh, in the tent, the tabernacle, or uh, finally the temple. Now the next verses, the next four verses picture the one who comes into God's presence. So God comes, but who can come into God's presence? Who is welcome there? So look at verses 3 to 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the Lord of the God of Jacob. So here's the king of glory, the Lord of creation. He's the one who's made everything and he comes to his people to be in the midst of his people. Now, the cherubim form the mercy seat. And that's significant because the mercy seat is where the blood of the atonement will be sprinkled because God must uh, be treated as holy. So who is the one who ascends to the hill of the Lord? It's someone who matches the holiness of God. Who can stand in his holy place? Who is possibly going to stand in his holy place? Because God is holy in every way. Now, we have a very hard time, uh, you might say, understanding that idea of the holiness of God. We think of the separateness of God. God is holy. He's separate. The sinlessness of God. He is sinless. There's no sin about him. But holiness also has something to do with the godness of God. That God's not us. We can't ever bring God down to us. God must voluntarily come down, condescend to us, which he does. But we can't make God in our own image, which is our tendency, isn't it? We want to make God in our image because that's what we feel comfortable with. We have a God that that seems like us. But God is holy in every way. God is is powerful in every way. There is no limit to God's power. This is a very difficult thing for us to understand because our power is limited, isn't it? There are only certain things we can do. We can't be in two places at one time. We can't retain retain our strength throughout our lives. (laughs) We lose our strength as we get older, don't we? Uh, God never diminishes in any way. He has been always God. Always God. He has known everything from the very beginning. There is nothing God doesn't know. He's omniscient. So he's omnipotent and omniscient. He's eternal and he's ever present. He's always present. 
because God is a spirit. There is no containing him. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Psalm 139 tells us. So how can we possibly come into the presence of the king of glory as sinful creatures? Look at the verses here. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, to to the place where God dwells? Who's going to enter in, not to just one earthly holy place, but into his holy place? If you read the book of Hebrews, you find that there is a real holy of holies. There's a real holy place, and that's God's presence. And everything here on earth is just a mirror, a picture, a faint echo of that. But who's going to stand in this holy place? He's got clean hands. Which of us has clean hands? How many times do we have to wash our hands for them to be clean? You know, Lady Macbeth is washing her hands and washing her hands and washing her hands. And is she ever able to get her hands clean? She can't get her hands clean. Her guilt is there. Who can purify their heart? Who can remove all trace of sin from their heart? Who can say, I have not lifted up my soul ever to what's false. I've never sworn deceitfully. So you see, it talks about our hearts, our hands, our lips. These are ways that we sin, aren't we? We sin with our hearts. Sin begins there. Then it takes action in what we say and what we do. And so our sins are evident. They don't just stay in our hearts. They pour out of our hearts. All those words that come out of our hearts. And you think a man sitting alone with a little click of the mouse. And there's an image. And he's just focused on that image. Oh, he's not going to stay there. But it's for a second too long. And his wife asks him, what have you been doing? Say, I'm just checking some things at work. And his lips have come out. In his heart, there's that desire for something besides God. Because all these things, the lips and the heart and the hands, are used to get things that are not God. Because anything that's not God is an idol, isn't it? And what idols fill our lives? What kinds of things do we long for with our hearts that are really not pleasing in God's eyes? What kinds of things do idols cause us to say, to do? How do we lay hold of things with our hands? Because the idols of our hearts are leading us to disobedience. So here is someone that the psalmist is picturing, David's picturing, whose uh, the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart are both acceptable in God's sight. So David can't qualify. He's a man of blood. He can't build the tabernacle or the tent uh, for ta- uh, the temple for God uh, because he's a man of blood. His hands are fil- filled with blood, with sin. Uh, so who's going to do this? Who's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord? 
who's going to receive a blessing from the God of his salvation? Righteousness from the from the Lord or righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who's going to be that one? And here you find the clash of of the desire to ascend the hill of the Lord and yet realize you're not qualified. You're not able to do it. And so what are we going to do? We're going to wait for God because God's done it. And this is the mystery of this psalm because you have in this psalm God in his glory described throughout the psalm especially as we get to the last verses God in his glory and yet God himself has come down to be the one who's ascended the hill of the Lord that's the son of God that's Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is the one who receives blessing and righteousness on our behalf because he's got clean hands and a pure heart Jesus never lifted up his soul to vanity he didn't swear deceitfully Jesus is the one who enters the holy place and you know what people of God he brings us with him it had to be one who was both God and man because only God can enter God's presence truly only God is holy but he had to be man because he had to identify with us in order to bring us there we don't deserve to go there do we we don't deserve to ascend we don't deserve to sit in the holy place we don't deserve to call God our father and yet Jesus Christ has become man taken our sin upon him that we might enter in and this is so glorious that there is virtually no way to describe it we're Jacob's now I think there's a specific reason why he talks about the God of Jacob God's the one uh, Jacob's the one who wrestles with God he fights with God there in the dark and has his hip thrown out but Jacob is also the deceiver Jacob's the heel grabber Jacob's the hypocrite Jacob's the liar Jacob is the one who has sin it can't be Jacob's sinlessness that allows him to enter it's because the God of Jacob is faithful the God of Jacob is going to bring Jacob into God's presence into the holy presence and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ he takes us who are Jacob's and he joins us to the holy son of God so that we can enter in so we can ascend the hill of the Lord so we can stand in his holy place he does this that we might receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation so the question is it's for those who seek the Lord so are you seeking the Lord is the Lord your hope is he your salvation do you go to him for deliverance because you can't ascend his holy place you can't stand in his holy place you don't have a right to be there in your own sin you must have the clothing of Jesus Christ and then you can stand in this holy place that's the glory of the gospel 
when we have hearts now that love God and speak truth to our neighbor. That leads us to the glorious conclusion of this as as the people of God welcome the King of Glory. And verses 7 to 10 uh, have a ringing um, aria in uh, Handel's Messiah, if you if you remember it. Uh, if you're thinking about uh, this in terms of the ark, uh, perhaps the ark is coming in sight uh, and is coming up the hill. Jerusalem is built on a little bit of a hill and it's coming up and the gates are there and the gates have to be opened because the gates are against the enemy. The, the gates are protection from the enemy. And so what's going to happen? Excuse me. And so the people on the wall are calling out. They're calling out and, and the crowd bringing up uh, the ark uh, are now uh, rejoicing and, and answering. And so that second time that David brought the ark up from um, uh, to, to Jerusalem, uh, that second time it was carried by the Levites and there was dancing and there was singing and there was praising of God and all the people are gathered there around the ark bringing it up and the people on the wall say lift up your heads O gates and be lifted up O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in who is this king of glory the Lord strong and mighty the Lord mighty in battle lift up your heads O gates and lift them up O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in who is this king of glory the Lord of hosts he is the king of glory and so here you have uh, people responding once they once they see the ark coming, once they think about what God has done, once we see the gospel, what do we say? What do we say? And as the gospel kind of changes our hearts, um, when God's people begin to think about it, they have so many ways that they want to praise God. And, and David has at least three ways that he talks about God. First of all, he mentions again and again that God is the king of glory. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, the, the idea of glory, you probably know, is the idea of heaviness. It's the idea of weight, kavod, the Hebrew word for glory is something weighed down. So God's glory is, is too, too much to lift up. His glory is too great. Uh, no earthly glory can compare to God's. God possesses all glory in his, himself. He's the king of it. Uh, he shows it. Uh, he can't uh, be hidden. His glory shines out. It shines out brighter than any sun or any nova uh, that we might think of. The second thing David mentions is that he is a warrior. Look at this. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. God is a hero. He is the Lord of battles. He wins every battle for his people. Uh, his people have no power in themselves. They're, they're weak in the eyes of the world. And yet God brings about glory. The church in the eyes of the world doesn't seem to be strong. And yet the church will triumph because all things are under the authority of the Lord of the church. Jesus has power over all things for the church. God is not some broken down boxer on the decline like Muhammad Ali in his final days. 
God uh, fights for his people and he defeats all their enemies. David could think back to how God defeated the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Amorites. All of them fell to the armies of Yahweh, to the armies of God. It wasn't David's leadership. It was God's presence with his people. And Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord of glory, our King of glory, is the Lord of battles. And he doesn't do it by the physical means, but Jesus has defeated Satan through the blood of his cross. Jesus has overcome all the powers of hell for us. Our catechism says he is king. He defeats all his and our enemies. All our enemies will finally be under the feet of our king, Jesus. And thirdly, he is Yahweh of hosts. Who is this king of glory? Verse 10 says, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. God is not just our little God, our personal God. He is God of the nations, God of the universe, God of all creation. Everything is his. And sometimes you feel like you are alone, don't you? You leave your neighborhood and nobody follows you on the way to church. You leave your apartment building and you look out and everybody else is asleep on Sunday morning or they're going to Walmart or some other place. They're eating uh, breakfast at uh, Wendy's, whatever it may be. And you seem to feel alone, yet you are not alone. When I was a student, I went to Urbana, the uh, University Missionary Conference, and there were 35,000 students there. And we sang the great hymn, Who is on the Lord's Side? 35,000 students. But you know what? He is the Lord of hosts. There's no counting his hosts. There are myriads of myriads of myriads of angels. There's a multitude that no one can number of redeemed saints. So you are not alone. You are never alone. You are surrounded by the hosts of heaven. And they will in that final day glorify God in the singing of his praise. So the gates of Jerusalem are, are swung wide and the king of glory enters. And the question is, does he enter our hearts? Jesus came and he was rejected, wasn't he? He had come on Palm Sunday and there was praise, like we read in Luke 19. There was praise for him. And only a few days later, that praise turned into cries of crucify him, crucify him. But he bears our names into his father's presence because he opened the way for us through his blood. And he leads host, a host captive. In that day, if you are dressed in his righteousness, you too will ascend the hill of the Lord you too will stand in the holy place. You too will say, I have clean hands and a pure heart because of Jesus. The king of glory was slain for us and we need to seek him always. The hymns we sing, the prayers we pray, the scriptures we read, 
the devotions we have at home, all those things should be ways that we're seeking to see and realize what it means to be Jesus's people. Heaven's been opened. Jesus has ascended. Because he's opened it for us, we need to turn from sin every day. It's hard because we love our sins. We love our idols. But we have to remember that it's about Jacob's. Jacob's who are deceivers and pretenders nonetheless are called in grace. Called in grace to leave sin behind and wait for the king of glory to come back and right now love him. You know, 50 some years ago, I could not have imagined a victory parade when I returned from Southeast Asia. No banners, no ticker tapes, no bands, nothing. But I'm waiting for this day of a victory parade for Jesus. Because it's my homecoming parade. Is it your homecoming parade? Let's pray. We ask, Father in heaven, that we might long for the return of our Savior, that he might be glorified in and through us. We pray that our lives will show that we are his, uh, that we do not belong to ourselves, but we've been bought with a price. That price was the very blood of the Son of God. And because that price has been paid, uh, we want to be different people, to come into your presence with thanksgiving and joy, to say our king is the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. In Jesus' name.